We begin a tale of one of the greatest adventurers in history. There were actually two of them, for this man and his wife left everything they knew behind to travel clear across the known world. But they didn't stay put there. By the end of his 175 years, he will have become the first immigrant, given his wife over to a harem twice, become a kingslayer, circumcised himself, tried to kill his own son, fathered the leaders of great nations, and bought a cave. He's like the Frodo, Jamie Lannister, and George Herbert Walker Bush of the ancient world. But he also established an eternal covenant with God, argued with God to save lives, and became the first Jew. And he did all of this after the age of 75. I mean, who says you can't have it all, right? This is the story of Abram and his wife Sarai, along with a few other characters. I think we're looking at at least two or maybe three episodes of telling the story. I'm not sure. I'm just going to kind of go and see how far I get. But I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So when we think about how religions get started, you probably have this image in your mind of some bearded wizard who lives alone out in the desert, smokes a bunch of psychedelic drugs, has visions of God giving him the word, and then goes around trying to convince everyone. Now, I mean, that's how I come up with ideas for my podcast. But in the case of Judaism, that's not how things got started. Abram, the first Jew, was quite the city boy. First of all, warning, spoiler alert, later in the story, Abram is going to be renamed Abraham, and his wife Sarai is going to become Sarah. So if you're feeling confused about who is this Abram guy, it's okay, he's Abraham, we're talking about the same person. Anyway, the Bible tells us that Abram and his family come from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans didn't own Ur at the time that Abram is supposedly living, which is during the second millennium BCE. Rather, at this point, Ur was a Sumerian city. But the Bible identified it with the Chaldeans because they were in charge of the city at the time the Bible was written. So it was a common reference point for the readers. In the same way, I'll tell you that Ur is located today in southern Iraq. It actually does still exist. It's an archaeological site. At the time of the Sumerian Empire, Ur was a major coastal trading city. And so Abram would have grown up in the ancient equivalent of San Francisco's financial district. And that's a really important point, because Abram wasn't some weird, uneducated guy out in the desert who founded some kooky religion which only later became sophisticated. At this point, 70 years old, he was probably quite cosmopolitan, and he probably engaged with people and ideas from all other places around the known world. He probably also complained about whatever overcrowded muni system was in place in ancient Urs. The camels are too slow, and they spit. I don't know. Actually, doesn't sound that much different than Muni. Anyway, while still in Ur, Abram takes for himself a wife named Sarai. Later, she's going to be called Sarah, about whom we are told one fact. She was barren. She was unable to have children. And so the great adventure begins. Abram's father, Terah, decides to move his family out from Ur and travel all the way to Canaan, which, remember, is ancient Israel. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but it does tell us that in addition to Abram and Sarai, Terah also brought Abram's nephew, a man named Lot. They set out, they leave Ur, 
but they don't make it very far because Abram's father suddenly dies. So now we come to one of the more famous phrases of the Hebrew Bible. Vayomer Adonai el Avraham lech lecha. And God said to Abram, lech lecha, go forth. Specifically, go forth from your native land and your father's house to a land that I, God, will show you. And not only that, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and all of the families of the earth will be blessed by you. In other words, God is promising Abram three things if he goes forth. Land in Canaan, numerous offspring to form a great nation, and blessings. Land and progeny, two key components of the covenant between the Jewish people and God that will become the cornerstones of Jewish religion, culture, and politics. You could make the case that here lies the ultimate root of the Israeli-Arab conflict over land in the Middle East. We aren't told why Abram, over anyone else in Mesopotamia, got this promise from God, what he did to deserve it. It just comes right out of the blue with no context. But he packed up Sarai and Lot and all their wealth and possessions, for they were pretty wealthy, and made tracks for Canaan. God is going to end up promising the land of Canaan to Abram four times throughout his life. And if you ask me, it's because the first time contained an unforeseen loophole. God told Abram he needs to go to Canaan to reap the rewards, but apparently God didn't say he had to stay there. Because the very first thing that Abram and Sarai do upon getting to Canaan is to leave for Egypt to escape a famine. And here we have kind of a strange story. Once in Egypt, Abram passes Sarai off as his sister and sends her to live at Pharaoh's palace where she presumably becomes one of the Pharaoh's mistresses. Abram is rewarded for his generosity with livestock and slaves. But God is not happy. And when God is not happy with Pharaoh, what does God do? Sends plagues. Yes, that is right. A gazillion years before we even get to the Passover story about Moses and the ten plagues, we get a foreshadow of that event with unspecified plagues against this Pharaoh on behalf of Sarai. Pharaoh calls Abram into his office, says, Maze, which means like WTF. Why did you tell me she's your sister so that I ended up taking her as my wife? Take her back, get out of here, and go back home. So in all fairness to Abram, this whole thing was kind of a smart play. Various scholars have argued that the sister of a prominent man would have enjoyed more protections in this era than a wife. Abram even says that he's worried that given her beauty, if he says she's his wife, the Egyptians will simply kill him and take her. Whereas if she's his sister, he can leverage her relationship with Pharaoh to do well for both of them. You will not be surprised to learn that Sarai had absolutely no input whatsoever into this plan. And Abram learned his lessons so well from this scheme that he'll actually do it again later on. Nachmanides, the great medieval Jewish scholar from Spain, really criticized Abram for this whole affair. Nachmanides said that Abram should never have left the promised land of Canaan in the first place and should have just trusted that God would protect him from the famine. He also sinned by subjecting Sarai to sexual victimization. Nachmanides actually credits this episode with the reason for the future enslavement of the Jews in Egypt. Which is what makes the story really interesting. As I said, it foreshadows future events in Exodus. 
Here's our first introduction to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to enslavement, to God's intervention with plagues on behalf of the Jews of Egypt, and to a Pharaoh allowing the Jews to leave. Now this time it's just two Jews, Abram and Sarai, but by the time we get up to Moses, it's going to be many hundreds of thousands. So Abram and Sarai head back to Canaan, specifically to the Negev, and there they encounter another problem, this time with Lot, Abram's nephew. The two of them had so many cattle trying to graze on the same land that they started arguing about it. Abram, being the fun uncle, tells Lot to pick out the best land, and Abram would take whatever is left. Lot took a look around, opted for the land of Jordan in the east, and put up some tents near the city of Sodom, which already at this point the Bible takes a moment to tell us is filled with sinners. Abram stayed in Canaan. So in contrast to the previous story, Abram comes out of this one looking pretty good. He comes across as generous, letting Lot pick first. And even better, he looks good with God because he chose to stay in Canaan. And for this act, God again promises the land of Canaan to Abram, whose offspring, God says, will now have it forever. Abram settles near the city of Hebron, and things are looking pretty good. But then a war breaks out between multiple kings in an area around the Dead Sea. Fourteen years of battle later, and one of the kings captures the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, taking Lot captive. Abram, the wealthy immigrant herdsman, decides that he's also actually a warrior, because why not? He rallies an army of 318 people from his household, kills both that king and several others, and takes back Lot. Nice job! And here, Abram is referred to for the first time as a Hebrew. This is the first mention of Hebrew in the Bible, and as I discussed back in episode 2, it seems to suggest an ethnic affinity. Hebrew probably translates as Abram of the other side, or something along those lines, and it seems to be marking him as a distinct group within the many other groups of this area. This story also contains the first and only mention of Jerusalem in all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. After his victory, Abram is visited by the king of Salem, Salem being an original native, Jerusalem, who bestows a blessing both on him and God. Why Jerusalem is only ever mentioned here, it might just be to establish that it existed as a central place of worship long before the Israelites arrived after Moses. In any case, Abram refuses to accept any rewards from the king, insisting that this victory is simply the work of God alone. So although things of late have been going pretty well for Abram and Sarai, they are both frustrated. God comes over to grab a beer and do a check-in, and Abram gets a bit worked up. He asks God, how am I supposed to be the father of many nations when I don't have any kids? God takes him outside, tells him to look up, and says that his offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky. And he itemizes all the nations which the offspring will take over when they are eventually freed from their future slavery in Egypt. Sarai, on the other hand, decides to speed the process up a bit by resorting to a common ancient Near Eastern practice. She gives to Abram her own servant, named Hagar, to bear him a child, which Sarai assumes she can then raise as her own. Abram sleeps with Hagar, Hagar gets pregnant, and Sarai is super pissed. Mainly because her own status is now lower than that of her own slave, because she cannot become a mother. 
She blames Abram for the whole thing and gives him an ultimatum, which maybe wasn't really fair since this was, you know, really this was her idea, but I guess it seems like fair retribution for the whole selling her to Pharaoh business from earlier. But Abram, who is wise beyond his years, decides to take no position, thus demonstrating that the prophets can get away with stuff that us mere mortal men can never do. Abram calls her bluff, says, I don't care what you do with Hagar, do what you think is right, and the Bible records Hagar fleeing after Sarai treats her badly. But Hagar doesn't flee for long. An angel of God finds her on the road and orders her to return. God tells Hagar that she too will have innumerable offspring, and that she will bear a son, whom she should name Ishmael. God further tells Hagar that Ishmael will be, and I quote, a wild ass of a man, and hated by everyone, which I have to say, it seems really unhelpful in this situation. I mean, you find her in the middle of the desert, crying on the side of the road, and you're like, hey, don't worry, you're going to have a kid, but all the other kids at school are going to hate him. I'm like, who says that? Come on, man. But anyway, Ishmael is born when Abram is 86 years old, and nothing happens for about the next 13 years. Finally, we come to chapter 17 in the book of Genesis in which God is going to seal a covenant with Abram for all eternity. Abram is 99 years old when God shuffles over to the retirement community to go on a walk. And God once again reiterates this covenant. Abram will be the father of many nations. These offspring will live in the land of Canaan, and God will be their God. At this, God changes Abram's name to Abraham to signify his status as the father of many nations. And also, contrary to popular belief, God insists that Sarai will be the mother of the child who will go on to produce these nations. In fact, so sure is God of this that Abraham is instructed to refer to his wife now as Sarah, because she will be blessed with a son. Abraham laughs sarcastically, reminds God that he's 100 and Sarah is 90, and anyway, he's got Ishmael, let's just use him. God says, don't worry about Ishmael. He's going to be the father of a great nation too, but Sarah is the one who's going to have a son, and you are going to name him Isaac. And one other thing. God says they need to have a sign between them to seal the deal on this covenant. Remember, after the flood, Noah got a similar sign of the covenant. A rainbow. Very nice. So what does Abraham and his offspring get? Circumcision. Wait, what? Really? We... What, can we not have the rainbow? Or how about a labradoodle? How about every male child gets a free labradoodle? That would be a really good sign of the covenant. I'd be behind that. But no, the instruction is quite clear. All male children are to be circumcised eight days after they are born in a ceremony called a brit milah, or bris. This covenant with God is to be forever etched into the skin, and whoever doesn't do it will have broken the deal and be cast out. So Abraham takes himself and his slaves, and his 13-year-old son Ishmael, and circumcises them all. And just to make sure we all got the message, the Bible tells this story twice. So let's step back a minute and take stock of this whole narrative. We have Abraham, a Sumerian who lived in Ur, who came to the land of Canaan at the behest of God, who told him that he would be the father of many nations. He had various adventures along the way, some good, some bad, but kept coming back to talk to God about this covenant. And as I'm telling this story, I keep thinking of 
like this really top level big picture question in my head. Why would you tell this story? If you were trying to tell an origin story to justify your presence in Canaan and why it's your land, why would you tell a story about an immigrant who came from the other side of the known world? Every other ancient culture situated their origin stories within their own lands so they could justifiably have claim to their own territory. And yet the Jewish people are like, nope, 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 we are not from here originally. We came in and kind of took it over. Why would you tell this story? The answer is that you wouldn't, unless you had to. And you had to because everyone at the time knew that we didn't originally come from Canaan. When this part of the Bible was written down around the 6th century BCE, the story of Abraham and Sarah had already been kicking around for probably a thousand years. So the biblical editor couldn't rewrite things to suddenly declare that the Jews had actually been there forever. Instead, what you could do is expand on the how Abraham got to Canaan by emphasizing the why, the covenant with God. Sure, we're not from here originally, we all know that, says the biblical writer, but that's not important. What is important is that the reason we are here is because of this covenant with God. We were promised eternal offspring in the land of Canaan as part of the deal, and so everyone has to uphold their part of the deal. And since this story was written down around the time that the Jews returned from a forced exile in Babylon after the destruction of Jerusalem, it was a story told in part to re-justify the Jewish presence in the promised land. In other words, this story wasn't written to be told to the original Canaanites as a justification for why we just took their land. The Canaanites were long gone at this point. The story is for the Jews of the time to better understand our narrative and our history and our relationship with God. It was also used as a bone of contention between different centers of power, but that's for a later episode. That's why it's not so far-fetched to suggest that there really was an Abraham and a Sarah. Of course, we have no evidence outside of the Bible, but this story is so rich and the characters are told with such depth that even though this was an oral tradition that probably began a thousand years before the Bible was written, it makes sense that the basic outline would be true. There really was a Sumerian who left his home, made his way to the promised land for whatever reason, either settled down or slowly seized the land, and served as the patriarchal ancestor for the people who populated Canaan. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a covenant to claim our origins in our own land. This part of the story of Abraham suggests that Jewish tradition values change and bold risk. Lech lecha, go forth. Abraham and Sarah were doing well out there in Ur. They were from a prosperous and wealthy family. What did they need to leave for? But when they did leave, great things happened. All right, so that covers maybe the first half of the Abraham story, or maybe the first third, we'll see. Next time, Abraham will add international diplomat to his resume, sell Sarah again to another king, watch as God annihilates two cities, deal with his loser of a nephew, and be asked to sacrifice his brand new son, Isaac. Thanks for listening, everyone. Next time.